Good evening. Welcome. I'm Carla Hayden with the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and it is indeed an honor for all of us associated with the Enoch Pratt Free Library to be part of this celebration. Many of you may know that there's some kind of other celebration going on. I think they call it a celebration or celebration going on in Baltimore, but I think you would agree that tonight, with this spirit, with all the wonderful people here tonight, that this is where the real celebration is going on in Baltimore. So thank you and welcome. We have partners at the Pratt Library, and we have been blessed to have Dr. Joanne Gavin to be our newest partner and now I think our fast friend for life. So I'm going to bring her up. Whoa! Look at this audience. This is fabulous. I must tell you, thank you so much, Dr. Hayden. Uh, I have to say to you especially, and to all of those who work at Enoch Pratt, Enoch Pratt, for me and my husband, was the way to see the world. In uh, Baltimore, those branch libraries, ours was on Wolf Street near North Avenue. And you remember that one, that branch? Yes, indeed. And that branch saved my life. So I, it feels like coming home when I come to Enoch Pratt Free Library. I want to say this is such an honor to be here, and I just want to give you just a little bit of the history of how all this came about. My friend, Nikki Giovanni, was the first person I called when Lucille Clifton died. And um, she consoled me as she could, and she said very quickly, if you have a reading for Lucille, I will read. And I think she thought better of it after a while. And the next morning, she called and she said, look, we need to do a tribute to the memory of Lucille Clifton and we should do it together. And that resulted in 73 poems for 73 years. And at that particular event, um, Linda Coolish, the photographer of note for this exhibit, uh, was there taking pictures. And her photographs are the ones you have seen or you will see in the exhibit upstairs on the second floor. I um, had the good, good fortune of also thinking about the Reginald F. Lewis Museum as a wonderful place for an exhibit for Lucille Clifton. So I went to the Reginald F. Lewis Museum on a Monday with my sister. It was closed. And I wanted to see Dr. Michelle Wilkinson, who I think is right here. Where is she? Here she is. And, and Stand up, wave, yeah. And so, um, so what happened, you have to hear this because this is a great story. So she wasn't there. So I left a message 
And then I came to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I got to speak with Judith Cooper. My sister and I sat down, and I said, you know, I really would like to have a photography exhibit based on the life of Lucille Clifton. And she said, okay. <laughs> I thought it was going to be hard. She said, we love Lucille at Ina Pratt. She was on our advisory board. Yes. Not only did she say yes to the exhibit, but she also said yes to having my sister, who's a caterer, do the food. I want you to know who this marvelous woman is, Judy Cooper, who is director of programs and exhibits. I also want you to meet a, another very important person. When Judy brought this man into her office and said, we need to make this exhibit beautiful, can you do it? He said, of course, yes. And he has done an absolutely fabulous job with his creative genius, putting the life and the work and the spirit of Lucille Clifton in a design on the second floor. It's marvelous. You need to see it if you haven't seen it. So we might have a moment afterwards that everybody can go up and view the exhibit. So I want you to meet Jack Young, who is the graphic designer for this exhibit. And finally, um, I want you to meet the photographer herself. Uh, Linda Coolish uh, is a marvelous uh, photographer. Not only is she a marvelous photographer, but she also is a woman with real courage and spirit. Uh, a year or so before 73 Poems for 73 Years, she had a very serious operation that almost eliminated her ability to take pictures. So when she appeared at 73 Poems in September 2010, I was so delighted. And she took the photographs that you will see upstairs. And they are gorgeous ones, most of them. Family pictures, no, but most of the other ones, yes. And um, so she had a really wonderful design for that particular exhibit where she arranged those photographs in um, special ways, really being inspired by the titles of Lucille Clifton's books. So, without further ado, I'm gonna bring her on and so you can give her your thank you and your applause and then she's going to read uh, for a few moments and then I will introduce our MC for the evening. Thank you so much, Joanne. Joanne is being um, uh, a little shy about how much she actually um, contributed 
to the exhibit because she picked out all the poems that went with the idea of each, of each um, section of the exhibit. And those poems really pulled together the sense of the many ways in which Miss Lucille um, affected all of us spiritually and intellectually and historically and every possible way. And um, I just, for those of you who haven't seen the exhibit or for those of you who have, um, I just want to say a little tiny bit about the organization. The first frame is of the poets who Lucille worked with at Squaw Valley and the American Academy of Poets and at Cave Canem. The second is, um, takes its title from The Terrible Stories, and in it are the poets who had the kind of courage that Lucille did to write about violence and lynching and incest and cancer and the kinds of things that most poets did not, but Lucille did. Um, and because it's impossible to live with that kind of pain, of course the next panel was Mercy. And in that panel were the poems um, that were about reconciliation and healing. And I'm sure there are people who have questions about what was Gordon Parks doing in there? I mean, he is a poet, but what was he there for? And he was there for one sentence. And that sentence is, he told people that he saw, he photographed with his heart, not with his eyes. And for me, that made him kin to Lucille. And there's also um, a portrait of an unnamed healer at a, um, a slave burial ground in Natchez, Mississippi. And I saw him perform a healing ritual, and I was incredibly moved. And then he turned around and walked away, and he had this drum tucked under his arm. And somehow, seeing him leave with all that dignity and all that beauty um, made him part of Lucille's circle. And there's also a quilting panel um, for the poems that are collected in quilting, which of course have no poems about quilting. Um, I didn't plan to tell this, actually. I, I told Alexia and, uh, and Jillian this story, and now I'm telling everybody else. But um, in it, there's a lynching quilt. Uh, there's a very beautiful quilt uh, consisting of paintings by uh, um, a woman named McGee, uh, who did, um, oh, that's the lynching quilt, I'm sorry. The, um, the um, Malinka Flowers, I think, did this very beautiful quilt uh, that has squares of many different poets. So anyway, that's the way that the, that the that's the way the, the, each panel was designed so that people could have a sense of the 
richness and amazingness of the many ways that Lucille Clifton uh, had an impact on many, many circles. So I'll stop there, but I do want to say that there's no way this would have happened without Joanne. And the, the, the choice of the poems and the introduction and all of that, which we did put together, she did all the poems, and it was perfect, um, just made the exhibit for me. Um, so I'm going to read one poem, which is actually three of Lucille's. It's a way to cheat. And it is uh, Toy Derricotte's poem called um, Homage to Lucille. Tonight, when I change my air reservations so I can come to Baltimore to honor Lucille, the one on the other side of the wire at us air is blind, bland and doesn't laugh easy. I'm trying to communicate not just that I have to change my reservation, but that I have to change it for the most important reason. Maybe if U.S. Air knows I'm coming for Lucille, they'll say, shucks, if it's for Lucille, just go free. Forget about the change fee. So as introduction, I say, ever hear of Lucille Clifton? No. I'm always flabbergasted about what people don't know. But I go on and make the ordinary reservation, getting charged the hundred bucks. And as she gives me dates and times and numbers, we get a little warmer till at the end I say, want to hear a poem by her? And she answers with her voice a new upsweep, yes. I run down the stairs with the phone like it's a new person in my house, a real woman coming to life somewhere close to my mouth and ear, and find it. Alphabetical on the shelf, good woman jumps into my hand. I open to the first poem and read, in the inner city, or like we call it, home. We think a lot about uptown and the silent nights and the houses straight as dead men and the pastel lights and we hang on to our no place, happy to be alive and in the inner city or like we call it, home. To this black woman who sounds tired of making reservations and the people who think theirs are important beyond the real, want to hear another? And she says, yes, even happier. It was really good. And I opened to, I was born with 12 fingers, like my mother and my daughter, each of us born wearing strange black gloves, extra baby fingers hanging over the sides of our cribs and dipping into the milk. Somebody was afraid we would learn to cast spells and our wonders were cut off. But they didn't understand the powerful memory of ghosts. Now we take what we want with invisible fingers and we connect my dead mother, my live daughters, and me through our terrible, shadowy hands. She says, that is wonderful. And now she sounds as close to me as love. And I say, and Lucille didn't have an easy life. She's had breast cancer. She had to have dialysis, a kidney transplant, and she lost her daughter not too long ago. If you saw her, you'd know that she's real. I mean, you'd know she's great, but you'd see she's real. She had some special connection to the center, and all that energy comes from there. You'd really like her. Then I read about her cutting greens. 
Curling them around, I hold their bodies in an obscene embrace, thinking of everything but kinship, collards and kale, strain against each other, and away from my kiss-making hand and the iron bed pot. The pot is black. The cutting board is black. My hand, and just for a minute, the greens roll black under the knife, and the kitchen twists dark on its spine, and I taste in my natural appetite the bond of live things everywhere. When I read the last line about connecting to everything, the operator says, that is really beautiful. You know, I am really moved, and I will. I really will look her up. My name is Tressie, and last week I found out that my nine-year-old daughter has cancer, and I want to get that book and read those poems to her. She will really like them. I said, isn't it wonderful that we met and I got to read you Lucille. After I lost my mother, Lucille told me, when you loose the, f- the flesh, you get more power. And it's like that, like the miracle of meeting you, you meeting Lucille, and just now. Thank you, Linda, and thank you for your wonderful eye in creating this exhibit. I certainly want to recognize the members of Lucille Clifton's family who are here. Uh, Please, Jillian and Alexia, would you stand up, please? And I told Michael, if you want to say anything at the end, you are welcome to do that. But if you don't, we understand. All right? All right. Um, I'm going to push along very quickly here. But I want to make sure that um, I introduce some special people. You know, it's really wonderful when you have people who work with you, who really love the mission of your organization. And there are at least three people here who just do this just because they love what Furious Flower is all about. So I want to introduce you to the members of the Furious Flower Advisory Board who are present. Uh, Please, would you stand up? Uh, Merle Winger, who is our chair. Carter Douglas, who is a member and who's also who is also the woman who did those beautiful flowers that graced the tables upstairs in the um, reception area. And also Myris Clarue, one of our newest members, poet, former member at American University. Right, and um, I certainly want uh, those members of my staff to wave, and and you'll you'll hear from them at least one of them la- uh, at the end of the program. Uh, please, Jill Wade, 
and Kalayla Williams. She's, she's back there. All right, now, now to the major part of the program. Uh, I am so pleased to introduce to you uh, a man who was not only uh, Lucille Clifton's colleague, but was Lucille Clifton's friend, and one, I would say, I would dare say, almost a part of the family. His daughter is uh, Lucille Clifton's goddaughter. Uh, so that recommends him. Michael Glazier, who it was for 38 years a member of the faculty at St. Mary's College, was in, 19, in 2004 named as Maryland's Poet Laureate and served in that position for five years, following in the footsteps, if you will, of Lucille Clifton herself. I, have, uh, I had a long prepared introduction for him, but uh, suffice it to say, he is a, a man who allows a poem to be, allows the poem to come into its own. And I'm so particularly happy that he is going to be able to use this time in retirement to produce more poems because I know he has so much to say. So, I want to say the next voice you hear after mine will be the voice of Michael Glazier. But before I sit down, I would be remiss if I did not advertise the fact that there is another exhibit that will open on Lucille Clifton tomorrow. Guess where? The Reginald F. Lewis Museum. And, and this is the end of the story. Dr. Michelle Wilkinson called me three days later after Judy Cooper said yes. She said, I'd like to do an exhibit as well. So did Furious Flower hit it out of the ballpark? Two exhibits that will run from June until December, honoring the life and legacy of Lucille Clifton. I am so excited. So, Nikki, my friend, this is what comes out of love and friendship. Thank you so much. So, would you please give uh, Ina Pratt welcome to Michael Glazier. Thank you. Let me add my voice of welcome. It's wonderful to see so many friends here celebrating Lucille. And in our celebrating of her life and her poetry, we are all friends together. For Lucille, poetry was a commitment to living an authentic life. Often her poems bring comfort and encouragement. And often also they are meant to be perfectly disturbing, even painful, challenges to both herself and to us to move more deeply into the heart and truth of things. As a poet, Lucille was above all a truth-teller. She liked to think of herself as the social activist Dorothy Day 
thought of herself as one who comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Academics and critics will long argue about Lucille's place in the world of letters. I think of her as being beyond categorization, a 21st century poet in the 20th century, one of the great truth-tellers of the contemporary era. An example. In the 1930s, when fascism and Nazism were taking hold in Europe, Bertolt Brecht wrote in a poem the following. What kind of times are these when it is almost a crime to talk about trees because it means keeping silent about so many evil deeds? And Adrian Rich, responding to that statement by Brecht, wrote her well-known poem, What Kind of Times Are These?, in which she told about an old revolutionary road that disappeared into shadows. And then she wrote, And I won't tell you where it is, so why do I tell you anything? Because you still listen because in times like these, to have you listen at all, it is necessary to talk about trees. And Lucille, who so admired both Brecht and Rich, has added her own voice to this thread of concern and challenge in her untitled poem from her book, Mercy. Lucille wrote, Surely, Surely I am able to write poems celebrating grass and how the blue in the sky can flow green or red and the waters lean against the Chesapeake shore like a familiar. Love poems about nature and landscape, surely. But whenever I begin, the trees wave their knotted branches and... Why is there under that poem always an other poem? Lucille's faith in the human heart was strong, and while she was always wary of the complexity of that heart, its potential for evil as well as its promise, she rarely faltered in her belief in the transformative power of truth. As this wonderful gathering of her friends reads poems this evening, do listen for those lines that convey Lucille's courage as a truth-teller and her belief in the transformative powers of truth. If it resonates with you, if the poems resonate with you, may I encourage you to accept them as an invitation to carry them with you out into the world when you leave here this evening. The poets tonight will read without introduction in the order listed in your program. Enjoy. Thank you.
What an honor to be here with all of you. An enormous thank you to Joanne, to Linda for the spectacular pictures, and to, of course, Miss Lucille for all that she gave to all of us. <clears throat> I'm going to read a few of her poems, very short ones. One of her great, great gifts to poetry was her amazing concision. She could say brilliant things with few lines, and we all uh, are schooled by her every day. We try to be. We don't ever live up to it, but we try. This poem is called Eve's Version. Smooth talker slides into my dreams and fills them with apple, apple snug as my breast in the palm of my hand. Apple sleek, apple sweet and bright in my mouth. It is your own lush self you hunger for, he whispers, Lucifer, honey tongue. Yeah. It's like... The creation and everything, sex and woman all at once. And then um, her ability to capture all of history, again in a very short poem, all of our American history and its curses. Photograph my grandsons spinning in their joy. Universe, keep them turning, turning black blurs against the window of the world, for they are beautiful, and there is trouble coming round and round and round. I think of Trayvon Martin and all the young men that we've lost so soon, so early, and she could do that. She could bring us to the pain um, and she could bring us to the defiance, too. And um, this poem is called Study the Masters, and it's in one of the exhibit spaces in the beautiful exhibit upstairs. Um, and uh, I don't know this for a fact, and maybe someone who knew Miss Lucille well can tell me, but there was a moment when um, the American Academy of Poets, which uh, was a very, <clears throat> shall we say, establishment uh, organization, it was all white guys, at that time, and um, someone, and and there was some noise about that, and so one of them was quoted in the New York Times Magazine as saying, "Well, we considered Lucille Clifton, but she's not really a master of the form." Of course, we kicked those butts, and later she was brought into the Academy because we all know she's a master of the form. So this poem is called "Study the Masters," like my aunt Timmy. It was her iron, or one of hers, that smoothed the sheets the master poet slept on. Home or hotel, what matters is he lay himself down on her handiwork and dreamed. She dreamed too, words, some Cherokee, some Maasai, and some huge and particular as hope. If you had heard her chanting as she ironed, you would understand form and line and discipline and order and 
America. Yeah. So I'm going to finish up with a poem of mine. Um, it's brand new, which is kind of insane, but it's, um, it's a tribute to all of the poets and all of the Americans who have fought uh, to make this country live up to its, uh, its stated goals and aspirations. And it's called, um, funnily enough, Drinking as a Political Act. The way my Virginia daddy made them mint juleps were a sacrament. He folded ice cubes inside a clean tea towel, then pulverized them with a wooden mallet that wasn't used for any other purpose. Picked mint he'd grown and tended in a strip of rich black earth that hugged the south side of our house on the south side of Chicago. My Virginia daddy'd been with Dr. King on the bridge in Selma, so I didn't know till I was a middle-aged white woman that black folks did not share my view of the julep as a rare and noble drink, but rather knew it for what it was, plantation-born, ice crushed by the strong arms of their ancestors, sweetened with the blood of others sold south, to cut the cane. But wait, what if we reclaim the mint julep, drinking as a political act? I don't mean we forget my Virginia forebears who sat on their wide porches and sipped the minty coolness of the labors of people they took to be their property. I don't mean forgiveness even. I mean, let's raise a glass to those who unmade that hideous life who keep unmaking it each day with their hard, truth-telling love. Come, here, let me make you a sweet, ass-kicking julep. Let me thank my daddy as I show you how it's done. Thank you very much. Here's a drink to Miss Lucille. Hello, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Melvin Brown, and um, um, more than one occasion, I remember Lucille mentioning that she uh, went to Howard at the same time that uh, Roberta Flack was at Howard, and she she often would say when she brought that up that um, she was a little envious because Roberta sang so well, and the irony of that is that Lucille had so much music in her, in her voice. Um, even when she wasn't reading the poem, she had music in her voice. It was just wonderful to hear her read. So I don't, I'm not reading a poem of Lucille's. I'm reading uh, two poems that I think Lucille would like. Um, one of the poems is a poem that I sent to Lucille in a card um, Michael, my buddy Michael, told me that she wasn't doing well at one point, and I sent this to her in a card, so she did see this poem. It's, it's simply called Birthdays, and I like to say that this poem is a um, Clifton-esque. 
because in its form and in its style and it's short. Um, and Lucille, I used to like to hear Lucille say about her poems, she'd say, people, people always ask me why my poems are short. And I tell them they're short because when I finish, I stop. <laughs> she, she used to say that a lot. I like to hear her say that. Okay, this is a poem called Birthdays. I have always had these two big eyes in the world, and though they have been small in knowing real gifts at times, they have always been in the world, open and ready to be huge lovers of holier instructions. They have always been in the world, open and willing to feel the shapes of saner ways. Today they feel the ways you give a world of words, and those ways are so sane. Today they feel the world owes you birthday presents, gifts as sane as yours, gifts as sane as yours. Um, so Lucille did bring a lot of sanity in the world, a lot of wisdom. Um, I met her when I was the editor of Chicory Magazine. It was published by uh, the Pratt Library. And, and uh, Lucille would often refer budding poets to me um, to be published in Chicory, and that's how I um, really got to know her. When I met her, she was Miss uh, Clifton, and um, um, after about 20-some um, years, I used to greet her, I used to say, Lucy girl, um, because there was a relative in her memoir, Generations, that referred to her as Lucy girl. So. Whenever I saw her um, in the later years, I would say, what's up, Lucy girl? And uh, I enjoyed that familiarity with her, and I think she didn't mind it at all. Um, uh, what else did I want to say? Um, well, I guess I wanted to read another poem. Uh, where's Miss Giovanni? Over there. There she is. I used to give Lucille rides. I used to drive her different places. Many people used to do that. I'd take her to readings. And um, um, this was during the early 70s when I was trying to figure out how to be a, a, a black revolutionary poet. And I had a big fro. And uh, I was... Uh, uh, I, I used to bombard Lucille with questions as, we, as I drove her around. I used to ask her about, uh, um, you know, the black aesthetic and the role of the black writer and uh, uh, all those kinds of things and, and Euro-American literary standards. And, and Lucille turned to me one time when I was driving her and she looked at me and she said, Melvin, I don't let white people spend that much time in my head. And, you know, those of you who know me, I'm a little slow, so I didn't get that for the first couple of years, but I, I, I finally got what she meant. Um, but Lucy was a wise woman. She was a woman uh, about laughter, about family, and about uh, healing. So I got a poem here that I wrote for my daughter. And uh, as I said, Lucille saw the 
first poem, but she didn't see this poem, and I think she would like it. Um, um, I have to say, Miss Giovanni and, and, and Lucille and people like Curlin Rogers, um, Haki Matabudi, um, Audrey Lord, um, um, Sonia Sanchez, all these people, these are the bridges that I crossed over on, and I'm, it's a pleasure to see you. Um, I make sure their words and their works are remembered in the minds and hearts of my students. Um, Okay, this is a a poem called Island Girl for my daughter, Maya. My daughter was, was once a mysterious island place to me, an enchanting land all her own. Years before, when her fatherland and her motherland separated and became two continents at war, I could see my daughter setting herself adrift, both a part of and apart from the landmass which she was created by, both apart from and apart of each parent's memory and expectation. But back then, I was so anxious, and what I wanted most was to know her because I was afraid of what was happening to her, and I worried about what I thought she might be feeling when hateful bombs of blame and accusation were hurled from both directions of the world she knew, exploding in ugly anger over her skies. Because I was so far off in the distance, I always just wanted to reach her and protect her from all the frightening uncertainty that I imagined was thundering into her childhood nights and burning fear into her sleep. But she was a mysterious island place all her own. Today being with her brings me great peace and joy, and although she is still a mysterious island, I've discovered a way of standing at a special spot on her horizon, and by the time she sees me peeking at her, I've already seen her from where she can't see me see her. And I've already seen the magic brightness of her, smiling, laughing, shining, and sparkling under her now beautiful island sky. And I've already seen her spirit like a colorful seashell revealed when a gentle wave recedes slowly from a sandy shore. Thank you very much. And God bless, God bless you, Lucy girl. Good evening. Thank you. I have to say I am overjoyed and I am honored to be here to talk to you all about Miss Lucille. Miss Lucille, she just... Um, She just, I've always said her work to me is like a tall, cool glass of lemonade on a hot summer day on somebody's wraparound porch on a swing. It just, it feels like home, you know, and it just resonates on every single layer of who I am as a black woman. It just resonates. And um, I have to say that um, the poems I wanted to share with you all today of hers are poems that I teach in a 10-week seminar that I actually co-teach at the Shakespeare, Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. Um, in this 10-week seminar, we invite kids, grades 10 through 12. You know, they learn about female poets from Shakespeare's time to the present. So, of course, Miss Lucille had to be a part of that. And um, I have to say, 
This is the one week in the class where they jail. When they read these poems by her, they say, oh, I didn't know that people wrote poems about this. And what is that, you ask? Well, how about this? We'll start off with, to my last period. <laughs> well, girl, goodbye. <laughs> After 38 years, 38 years and you never arrived splendid in your red dress without trouble for me, somewhere, somehow. Now it is done, and I feel just like the grandmothers who, after the hussy has gone, sit holding her photograph and sighing, wasn't she beautiful? Wasn't she beautiful? So, you know, obviously one of the things I loved about Miss Lucille's work is she just had a way of honoring things that so many other times in this whole process, this, she upheld what it was to be a woman and she praised it. She honored it. And she made you excited about it. And these, these girls, and invariably, I have to say, most of the time it was all girls in the class, occasionally one or two boys. Um, these girls would just be like, what? There are actual poems about your period? And I'd say, yes, doesn't it make you feel excited? And sometimes they would say, you know what? It actually does now. And I'm like, that's the point. That's, that's what she can do. She makes you excited about being a woman. And, and so then I have to follow with poem to my uterus. <laughs> you, uterus, have been patient as a sock while I slippered into you, my dead and living children. Now they want to cut you out, stocking I will not need. Where I am going, where am I going, old girl, without you, uterus, my bloody print, my estrogen kitchen, my black bag of desire? Where can I go barefoot without you? Where can you go without me? This so one of the other great things about Miss Lucille is just the humor in which she approached all the different aspects of being human. Because it's like she recognized that you can't be serious about all this all the time. You know, you have to laugh or you'll go crazy. And, and she seemed to know that. And, and you know, in these poems, I, I look at these poems and I look at her work and the way it affects me. And it's like, these poems understood me without the armor I put on every day to go outside, and yet at the same time, these poems provided me with that armor to go out every day and do what I had to do. And so I, I will, this is a poem I think so many people know of hers, and that is Wishes for Sons. <laughs> and now that I have a son, he's only 16 months old, but I, I'm waiting for him to get older and I can read this poem to him. <laughs> Wishes for Sons. I wish them cramps. I wish them a strange town and the last tampon. I wish them no 7-Eleven. I wish them one week early and wearing a white skirt. I wish them one week late. <laughs> Later, I wish them hot flashes and clots like you wouldn't believe. Let the flashes come when they meet someone special. Let the clots come when they want to. 
Let them think they have accepted arrogance in the universe, then bring them to gynecologists not unlike themselves. <laughs> And, and I just have to end with this poem. And again, I, you know, I'll just show you this. We have, this is, again, the section I teach with, on Lucille Clifton. It's part of this, and we have all these four poems on one when I created it and redid it and made sure we put extra Lucille in there. Um, <laughs> we uh, put all these four poems on one page. So it's always like the page I can't wait to get through. You know, it's like, I'll wait till you guys get a load of these poems. Um, so I, I end with this poem. And, and before I say, read this poem, I wanted to say, of all the people I have met, and, um, you know, and I had a job with, a, with an NPR syndicated show and all this other stuff. Lucille Clifton, meeting her was the one time that my knees shook, just shook. And my husband looked at me like, what is wrong with you? You've never quailed before meeting some famous person. I was like, you don't understand what she means to me. And I just, you know, and so ooh, I, can, I can feel the tears, so I'm going to fight those back. <laughs> but here you go. Poem in praise of menstruation. If there is a river more beautiful than this, bright as the blood, red edge of the moon, if there is a river more faithful than this, returning each month to the same delta, if there is a river braver than this, coming and coming in a surge of passion, of pain. If there is a river more ancient than this, daughter of Eve, mother of Cain and of Abel, if there is in the universe such a river, if there is somewhere water more powerful than this wild water, pray that it flows also through animals, beautiful, and faithful, and ancient, and female, and brave. And it's that that I wanted to leave you all with, just the way that Miss Lucille could lift you up and praise what was so great about it, about being human, about being a woman, and make you feel so empowered. Thank you all so much. Lucille, look at what you've done. So are we feeling Lucille flowing through this party yet? I did not know Lucille personally. I met her a number of times, like a lot of you here did. But you did not have to know Lucille personally in order to know her personally and in order for her to know you personally. So at one point, I interviewed Lucille for a literary journal. It was an amazing interview. You can imagine the kinds of magical, transporting things that she said. And when we were done, I got my nerve up, 
And I told her I had some work of my own coming up that I didn't know what to do with. I was a little scared of it, actually. And I asked her if I could send it to her. And she said, yes. And a part inside of me said, oh, man. Man was not the word I used, you understand. (laughs) But let's say I said, oh, man. And the thing is, I never sent it to her. I never sent it to her because looking back, I was scared. I was scared of the doorway that she was opening. Not only the doorway of her generosity, which she was opening, but also the doorway of where your work might take you once someone like Lucille Clifton looks at it and says what they say. I was scared. Never sent it to her. So today I have kind of an opportunity to offer some of that work to her, a little bit of it, and uh, see what she says. This is a very small piece of a much longer piece that's called saxophone. It starts like this. First, it starts with propping the thing up so it'll stay. Yeah, cool. All right. Got to get my reed together first. Reeds are like weird things, especially when you are a, let's say, improving saxophonist. It's a small piece of saxophone for Lucille. Thank you. 
you don't exactly play it. It's more like you drop the reed onto your tongue and you let it settle on down through you. You trembling trough, you, you bottom-heavy vessel held in place by your shoes. You hold this bent brass tube for balance right down through your feet, which are gravity glued to the oak floorboards, which in turn rest on the bending beams that hang onto the studs, that stand up in the concrete, that clings to the earthen shell of a spherical rock that rockets through spatial silence at 67,000 miles an hour while you ride this big sailing ball like a surfer in search of a soundtrack. You take it. You let the reed sink through your tongue until you feel the tires of the cars outside on the wet road dig their fat teeth into your pebbled pink suction. You take it, baby. You French kiss the friction all the way down into its motor throat. Your soft works worming in traction against itself. You take it, you tongue it, some exhaled song about the way you want to walk right out of the knotted membrane of your name, the way you want to walk till your past falls away like a tail. You want to walk until God gives up on you and sends his angels back home from the hunt like skunked hounds. You want to walk till you slide off your bones into your natural body. You take it on any street, sounds connected by strings, a giant non-parallel piano. The exhaust pipe of a bus farts its punctuation for the last apology a man will ever shout to his lover. A taxi beeps and a woman trips. A flock of pigeons beats a feathered drum roll into the air. A dog yelps a triplet to every four bars of construction crew percussion. Tires squeal to the tune of young girls. A young boy writes raps in iambic pentameter. A lone junkie junkie giggles with the same rhythm as gunfire. A siren screams at the same pitch as a wailing mother. While your heart's chamber music pumps non-stop in your chest, a metronome beating to everything. Since physicists tell us that every 15 days, all of your body's atoms swap themselves out with others from elsewhere in the universe, meaning that twice a month, you are a new instrument, your secret new body humming in code, a key out of itself. You take it. You lift your life to your lips and give it away. Take it. Speak like a waterborne reed. Take it. Every lie you ever told, dissolving fast between your teeth. Take it. You a rush of release, caving you inward. Take it. You a straw sucked flat, squirting its emptiness. Take it. You being taloned and squeezed, wrung out into traffic, sung into namelessness and flung into shape, wapped, bapped, and shimmy-slapped by the hands of space. Hold your tongue against all that and blow.
Thank you, Lucille. Good evening, my name is Linda Joy Burke. I want to thank um, Judy and everybody for being here and listening, and aren't you beautiful? Um, I'm going to read three, three poems. This morning, for the girls of Eastern High School, this morning, this morning I met myself coming in, a bright jungle girl shining, quick as a snake, a tall tree, a me girl. I met myself this morning coming in, and all day I have been a black bell ringing. I survive, survive, survive. Oh, it's in this book. Usually I have a lot to say, but I think everybody else has said so many amazing things that I don't want to add to what's already been written. This poem is called Daughters. Woman who shines at the head of my grandmother's bed. A brilliant woman. I like to think you whispered into her ear instructions. I like to think you are the oddness in us. You are the arrow that pierced our plain skin and made us fancy women. My wild, rich grin my magic mama, and even these gaudy girls. I like to think you gave us extraordinary power. And to protect us, you became the name we were cautioned to forget. It is enough, you must have murmured, to remember that I was and that you are. Woman, I am Lucille, which stands for light, daughter of Thelma, daughter of Georgia, daughter of dazzling you. And one of the, um, one of the poems that uh, I had the opportunity to share with Lucille when I was a younger poet some 30 years ago, or I think it was in the 80s, actually. Was that 30 years? It's a long time, isn't it? Um, and uh, she said I was a good poet, and that helped on the journey. And considering the atmosphere of the world today, I wanted to share this poem. 
It's called for Carlotta, who died at the age of 20, a soldier in Angola. We want our daughters to be able to dance again in firelight and moon glow. We want them to pass their blood to fertile ground through rite of passage rather than under the pressure of shrapnel stopping their hearts. We do not want to be here merely to have the men laugh and lick their lips and drip obscenities on our breasts. We do not want to bear down hard in our bellies to have infants born into this loveless, cruel world. We want our light like aurora, like simmering heat reflected from shafts of golden grain to come not from M16s and grenades, but from round tables filled with fruit and brown bread and hands not afraid of holding each other. We want peace. We want peace because we're tired of giving up our children to the gasoline burnings of weak old flesh. We want peace because it's been so long since we could dance unafraid. And we want so much for our motherlands to heal. Namaste. Good evening. I'm John Wesley. Hope everybody is having a great time. I... uh, I'm one of those very fortunate guys. I was born in the Delta, Mississippi. And uh, my first mentor in poetry was Dr. Margaret Walk Alexander. So I was fortunate enough in 1968, uh, Sigismund Alexander, her son, was my roommate. And Sigismund happened to invite me over to his house one evening, and guess who was there? Nikki Giovanni. Whoa, that's pretty good. Uh, soon afterwards, I had the opportunity to work with Audra Lloyd, and she worked with me right up until uh, April 68, when Dr. King was uh, assassinated uh, in Memphis, and uh, actually came to see me at Carnegie Hall that night. I was about 18 years old, and um, there with Duke Ellington and his orchestra. And that was the last time I had the opportunity to actually see uh, Audra Lloyd and, uh, and talk to her. But guess what? Soon after, I met Lucille Clifton. Hey! So I kind of considered myself on a roll. I'm not going to read, uh, in the interest of time, the first poem that she juried for me because of its length. I'd like to read a short poem and uh, read a song, uh, do a song that I wrote for her and one of the songs from my CD. So I'll just read the short poem. This is called, and this ain't even a love poem. I know I love you, because you hold my attention when I'm pretending I'm busy. And this ain't even a love poem. In the morning, when my limp love slides down the insides of your soft legs and your loving eyes open and you smile, and you lose your sucking motion on my top lip, don't move your hip, you got me trying and crying and wondering why I thought of dying when a mother says she doesn't want to come to the phone. 
I love you because the Nicodemus syndrome has ended a rain dance on my shoes. And your blues is making me dance like a preacher waiting for his organ prelude. Never mind the other dude. I don't mean to be rude because this ain't even a love poem. I came and came again, and kissing you dread the need to breathe. It means having to leave your lips untouched. Don't loose me from your clutch. I love you. I love you. Stay with me. Stay with me. Play with me. Grow old with me. Go slow with me. Stay. I want it all. Whenever you call, I'll send you up a wall. Let Mother Nature be a paw, because this ain't even a love poem.
It is a great honor to be asked to give tribute to a poet who paid tribute to so many others by bearing witness, um, as other people have talked about, bearing witness to the difficulties of this country. At the cemetery, Walnut Grove (coughs) Plantation, South Carolina, 1989. Among the rocks at Walnut Grove, your silence drumming in my bones, tell me your names. Nobody mentioned slaves, and yet the curious tools shine with your fingerprints. Nobody mentioned slaves, but somebody did this work who had no guide, no stone, who molders under rock. Tell me your names, tell me your bashful names, and I will testify. The inventory lists ten slaves, but only men were recognized. Among the rocks at Walnut Grove, some of these honored dead were dark, Some of these dark were slaves. Some of these slaves were women. Some of them did this honored work. Tell me your names, foremothers, brothers. Tell me your dishonored names. Here lies, here lies, here lies, here lies, here. When James Byrd was dragged, no, when three men dragged James Byrd, right, let's, I teach English, and so I was thinking about that sentence and thinking about introducing this poem, and I said, no, don't, don't, don't use the passive when James Byrd was dragged. When three people, when three men dragged James Byrd behind a truck in 1998, I wrote a poem after reading the headline, and when I read that poem, I think at Cave Canem, Um, somebody told me that Miss Lucille had written a poem. And, of course, when I read Miss Lucille's poem, I thought, wow, that's that's a lot better than my poem. (laughs) So here is Miss Lucille's poem. (laughs) Jasper, Texas, 1998, for Jay Bird. I am a man's head hunched in the road. I was chosen to speak by the members of my body. The arm, as it pulled away, pointed toward me. The hand opened once and was gone. Why and why and why should I call a white man brother? Who is the human in this place, the thing that is dragged or the dragger? What does my daughter say? The son is a blister overhead. If I were alive, I could not bear it. The townsfolk sing, we shall overcome, while hope bleeds slowly from my mouth into the dirt that covers us all. I am done with this dust. I am done.
And before I end with one of my poems that I hope um, is uh, in the vein of renaming, because that's what Miss Lucille did. She recognized, she remembered, she renamed. Um, I want to uh, share the last thing that she said to me. Um, my wife, Terry, brought her to the Folger Shakespeare Library. And um, when she read there in May of 2008, Terry was about six or seven weeks pregnant with our, uh, with our daughter, Zoe, who's now three. And Miss Lucille, as Terry and I were about to leave, looked at me and said to me, remember, you always loved her first. <laughs> so, uh, inundated after watching Hurricane Katrina coverage. What tides move in him? At what watermark did survival instinct kick in? How much water is too high for waiting? At what pitch of a baby's cry does the father think diapers or food instead of too deep, too much wind? On film, his trudge out of the French Quarter Walgreens will be labeled looting. His visage, gait, indistinguishable to the casual viewer from people clutching stereos, sneakers, alcohol, any item the newsroom seems to suggest black people grab first. But look closely. See Huggies under his right arm. Who can know his story? Who wouldn't grab a 12-pack if the bad day that sends us to scotch on a Tuesday were strung together for months, for lifetimes? If what a teenager makes working a summer job had to feed a family? If health care, a house, were fleeting dreams? So look again. He carries milk with the Huggies, and he's black, and he might not have made it home, but you wouldn't probably have heard if he didn't. So call him father or husband, maybe Larry or Junior, handsome, thoughtful, drenched, scared, but not looter. Thank you, Miss Lucille, for your work. Thank you for the opportunity to read. Thank you. Wow. I didn't know it was that many people back there. Good evening, everyone. I'm so happy to see you all tonight for this occasion. And so I feel so blessed and honored to be here tonight and to share with you about Miss Lucille. Um, I'm going to read a few of the Fox poems. Um, the Fox poems are among some of my favorite um, poems of Lucille's. And I discovered them when... Um, Blessing the Boats came out, and I hadn't read them. And um, I have a good friend who's very ill right now. She has MDS, and 
Um, I, so I was thinking tonight, I should read some of the cancer poems for her. But then I thought about the fox poems because she and I both really believe in totem and these, these spirits of animals and um, how they were, they were always telling us things. And in 2006, when I was at Cave Canem, Lucille was telling the story about the fox poems, because I asked her, I, you know, how did you come up with these poems about the foxes? And she says, well, you know, it actually happened. I went to my, my place in St. Mary's, and there was a fox sitting there. And I'm like, what is this fox sitting doing? And um, the fox, to me, was communicating with her, and um, these beautiful poems emerged. So I'm going to share a few of these. Sorry about that. Telling our stories. The fox came every evening to my door, asking for nothing. My fear trapped me inside, hoping to dismiss her, but she sat till morning, waiting. At dawn, we would, each of us, rise from our haunches, look through the glass, then walk away. Did she gather her village around her and sing of the hairless moon face, the trembling snout, the ignorant eyes? Child, I tell you now, it was not the animal blood I was hiding from. It was the poet in her, the poet and the terrible stories she could tell. Fox. The foxes are hungry. Who could blame them for what they do? From Foxes in Winter, Mary Oliver. Who can blame her for hunkering into the door wells at night, the only blaze in the dark, the brush of her hopeful tail, the only starlight, her little bared teeth? And when she is not satisfied, who can blame her for refusing to leave for raising the one paw up and barking. Master of the hunt, why am I not feeding, not being fed? The coming of fox. One evening I returned to a red fox hunched by my door. I am afraid, although she knows no enemy comes here. Next night again, then next, then next, she sits in her safe shadow, silent as my skin bleeds into long, bright flags of fur. And I'll share one more. Um, there are several more. A Dream of Foxes. In the dream of foxes, there is a field and a procession of women, clean as good children. No hollow in the world, surrounded by dogs. No fur clumped bloody on the ground. Only a lovely line of honest women stepping without fear or guilt or shame, safe through the generous fields. So that's for Lucille, and I really feel her with us tonight. Thank you.
beautiful you are. I want to read something by Lucille, like a sort of a poetic statement uh, taken from an interview with uh, Charles Rowell for Callaloo, and then something about Lucille on behalf of those of us who had the great pleasure of working with her um, at a Kavi Kanam retreat, um, and then end with one of Lucille's poems. However, as a Pratt employee, <clears throat> thank you, Judy Cooper, for not letting me go, and Dr. Hayden, um, it would be uh, remiss of me to say that Lucille is literally part of this building. Um, down in our children's room, we have uh, two spaces, two areas for uh, kids where we do children's programming. There's a night room where it looks like the stars are above, and there's a day room which has a skylight. And around the skylight are the names of some important characters in children's literature, and one of the names there is Everett Anderson. And it would be wrong of me not to mention Everett. Bless him, I loved Everett. And so Lucille is literally part of the Pratt Library. So anyway, this is uh, some, a little bit of, uh, I guess what you can call, like I said, her poetic statement. <clears throat> a person can, I hope, enjoy the poetry without knowing that I am black or female. But it adds to their understanding if they do know it. That is, that I am black and female. To me, that I am what I am is all of it. All of what I am is relevant. Do you know what I mean? I say to students all the time that either or is not an African tradition. Both and is tradition. I don't believe in either or. I believe in both and. So my I tends to be both me, Lucille, and the me that stands for people who look like me and the me that is also human, you know? I think if I distinguish anything, there's a, distinct, there's a distinction between what I look like on the outside and what somebody else does and what we are on the inside. So it's me as the outside and me as the inside. What I'm writing is also history. And some of it is the history of the inside of us and some of it is the history of the outside. Poetry is about more than logic. Poetry, it seems to me, comes from both intellect and intuition. One doesn't separate oneself out. It's not either or, it's both and and again. And so if I write, I must write out of the whole of what I am. In writing poems, of course, I have to use my intellect, but that's not all I use. I use intuition. I even use fear, you know. I try to use everything that I am. Now, in the academy, I can talk about creative writing programs. I teach in them. One tends to think of poetry as not only an intellectual exercise, but one that's just for the eyes. Does it look like a poem? Must be a poem. But I'm interested in other questions. Does it sound like a poem? Does it feel like a poem? Does it tell as much of the whole truth about being human as it can? Because the whole truth is that we're not all just our head and what we think. Logic is very useful. So is feeling. Um, I wanted to, when I was here, I wanted to do a, uh, a program 
uh, we were going to call it We Love Lucille. We were going to do it on the fourth, on, uh, sorry, Valentine's Day, actually, try to get it close to Valentine's Day. Because, as you can see, so many people did, and it's one of those things where, you know, you, you keep thinking about something, you know, you should do this while she is alive, she should do this, so, because we, she knows, but she really needs to know. And I know you're not supposed to have regrets, but that's my one regret. But, um, she used to say, well, as you know, Valentine's Day is February 14th, and it's um, Black History Month, and somebody once asked her about Black History Month, well, do you do readings during Black History Month? She said, well, you know, the ancestors worked so hard, I think that I'm, I just take February off in honor of the Black History Month. That's how I celebrate. So. Um, this is from um, our sister Mendy Lewis Obadike about being in class with Lucille and what she taught her. And actually, I think for some of you, there will be a little bit of surprise because one of the first classes that Mendy took with Lucille was on science fiction. How's that? (laughs) There are many wonderful things about that experience. Only some of them have to do with science fiction. On the first day, she began, I don't know whether good writing can be taught, but I know that it can be learned. I thought it was a wonderful thing to say because even before I learned the good many things I would learn about discipline from her, I began to understand that I was going to have to become a seeker and do my own heavy lifting. With regards to quote-unquote science fiction, Clifton told us that you might hear in any fiction writing, Clifton told us things that you might hear in any fiction writing class. And I certainly some of learned some of basics about the genre, but I was affected most deeply by the way she challenged our boundaries between science and the spirit and those between fantasy and reality. She was forthright about otherworldliness and comfortable in oddness. I don't mind being odd, she said so many times. In fact, oddness was a quality she valued in herself and in others. I don't yet know how to tell you what it did for me to witness her dedication to her craft and her awareness and acceptance of herself in that time in my life. I was trying to break out of some fears about being an artist and facing some unexpected fissures between communities of literary critics and writers. I have faith that I would have found my way one way or another, but the truth is that my way was made easier and more joyous and thankfully otherworldly by listening to and learning from Lucille Clifton. Yes. You couldn't talk about writing with Lucille Clifton and have a poetic bone in your body and not learn to have her eyes and ears on your poetry. The next year when she came back to Duke, I had the opportunity to take her poetry class. We met in the little house she was renting. I don't know how to put down all the things I gained from those meetings, but what comes to me simultaneously are two things. One, the shape of the poem, and two, the idea of poetry as something we do for our lives. Clifton talked to us about shapes, lines, typing bones out instead of writing them, economy, and rhythm that semester. She would cut right to it and didn't mind telling you if you hadn't gotten it right. She might chuckle and start by saying, it's funny, Uh, but she would tell you. I remember that, it's funny, by the way. And invariably, if you wrote that poem, it wasn't all that funny. Um... Reading and writing and talking poetry with Clifton in that little house brought home to me how much writing poetry was a process of personal significance. 
Poetry was certainly something she valued doing in public and was certainly important to her to speak for those who could not speak for themselves for a variety of reasons. But she also taught me that it was a way we could understand and improve our own lives. Each of us is a bridge. We lead one another to one another, and if we do it right, to the lives we hope to live. And finally, this is from Good Woman. The light that came to Lucille Clifton came in a shift of knowing when even her fondest sureties faded away. It was summer. She understood that she had not understood and was not mistress even of her own off eye. Then the man escaped throwing away his tie and the children grew legs and started walking and she could see the peril of an unexamined life. She closed her eyes, afraid to look for her authenticity. But the light insists on itself in the world. A voice from the non-dead past started talking. She closed her ears and it spelled out in her hand, You might as well answer the door, my child. The truth is furiously knocking. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? You know, I'm from Baltimore. This is my home, as some of you know. And I think we are so blessed to have had Lucille with us. She left one steel town and came to another, Baltimore. And um, I think that my, I know for sure, my life would not have been the same without knowing Lucille. My friend Melvin Brown and I, Melvin read earlier, both from the, well, Melvin knew Lucille before I did, and she talked to him about me. And I was working in a factory that's no longer there, it's been sold, and it sat down on the harbor when I met Lucille. And um, 10 years later, when I was able to leave that, that life and move on, it was largely due to the influence of Lucille Clifton on my life and my work. And what a blessing, you know, what a blessing. And so I decided to uh, write a letter to Lucille. And I'm going to read this letter. I've been sitting there editing it while I've been listening to other people read. Um, But before I I read this letter, I want to say some of the uh, things that Melvin said, but repeat them. I cut my teeth on the black arts movement. And I had a copy of James Cleveland's album with Miss Nikki Giovanni reading behind it when I was a kid. And I was, uh, my bedroom was in upstairs on the second floor of that two-story house on Federal Street. And that album sat there on the top and I played it. And now it's in my iPod. (laughs) But I can't find a copy of the one with your poems, but I have the music, I remember. And I used to read your poems about uh, your family in Tennessee. And that was part of the formation of my consciousness as a poet. Dear Lucille, I hope this letter finds you in the best of all possible states there in the dimension you helped me know is just another part of life. I write with a faith you helped me have 
and how life goes on over there and how there is this bridge called language. You helped me understand how to write by opening up, letting things come. I have never lost that way. Sometimes I'm more deliberate with projects and that kind of thing, but you showed me the road to my imagination and how traveling that road was about letting go and receiving. What a blessing. Oh, my soul, what a blessing of a lesson, a lesson for life. Remember back in 1977 when you gave a reading at the Martin Luther King Memorial Library? We had my father's 72 Chevy Impala, the green car with power windows and air conditioning. My Ford Maverick wasn't quite so comfortable. I wanted to be as much as style as I could considering we were going to Washington where looks matter more than anything, it seems. Besides, I had just come out of a case of bad nerves, as people used to say. I loved you for many reasons, especially that you understood my struggles and gave me support. I never got a chance on this side of things to tell you how important that was to me. Do you remember when we met? It was around the middle of the fall of 1974 or early that winter, around the time Get Christy Love was on television. You were at a branch of the Pratt Library giving a reading. A woman I knew and who liked me had decided to help me. I was writing poetry by then, writing and trying to get myself together. Being 23 is not the easiest thing in the world. But there you were. I guess you were about 38 years old at the time. You took up the space where you were standing with such a regal air. I got out of the factory. It surprised some folks, and it surprised me, too. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to escape, and there I was working right across from where Frederick Douglass lived until he made his escape. People asked me what was my connection to Frederick Douglass, why his life is important to mine, and I just get stunned, Lucille. You know what I mean? I just get stunned. I give half an answer and walk away. People don't understand slavery, do they? Getting your things together at night, tying them up in rags, watching the night sky to see how much light there is, checking on what might hold you back or catch you, the really bad dogs or the overseer with no compassion whatsoever. That's a living metaphor for black folk. I swear, Lucio, I believe it is a living metaphor standing for the kind of preparation we have to make to do what we got to do to make a bigger way in life. I tell people what I learned from you, how you gave me books on poetry, how you let me read poems to you over the telephone. When your kids were little, who are no longer kids, I would call the house and one of them would answer and then call you, Mama, it's Michael Weaver on the phone. I never told you, but I would sit there waiting for you to come to the phone and just feel so validated and affirmed that you even made time for me. These younger poets don't call me to read a poem to me of theirs. They send the whole manuscript and ask me to write a blurb. <laughs> I just might turn into a big fat blurb like an overripe watermelon one day. And I hope I am making you laugh or at least smile the way I know you do. You know good and well I like to help these young poets. A few of them are superstars. They have support systems that were not there for you and me. Support systems, hmm. I think about what you told me about writing while sitting in the kitchen, one child on your lap, 
the other one's opening up the refrigerator and pulling things out of the cabinet. <laughs> you know something else, Lucille? I am 60 years old now and just really understanding how much you, more you influenced me. When we met, you were writing with the full consciousness of your pain, but it would be years before I came into contact with the fact of having been messed with as a child. Your spirit spoke to my spirit in the way you could go from formal to the vernacular. I love to say that word, vernacular. <laughs> and back to formal. It was a new elegance in American poetry. Hallelujah. As I read your work and took your writing tips, I was learning to have different ranges for the different ways of working the language. It's a gift, I guess. And I don't really know how the gift works with the pain, the pain is not required for the gift, but some folk think it happens that way. I just think we are so sensitive, it makes us vulnerable to folk who prey on people. Some people think the pain makes them a poet, but pain comes to a lot of people. Thank you for agreeing to be the second Cave Canem elder. I was the first elder, and I got lonely. When they put you on the other side of the letter here there with me, I felt like things were all right. We were back in my father's green Chevrolet, two poets with puffy little afros heading down a highway, always going somewhere. I got a sign off here now, Lucille, with the name you knew me by for most of those years, the name my mom and daddy gave me. I know you will never leave me. Time moves on, but love never leaves. Life is love. And I have one sh short poem to read by another poet who was important to me and to Lucille Lang Langston Hughes. And it's a kind of love poem. And considering the, the way that I was writing to Lucille in the letter, I think it sort of fits. It's called Harlem Night Song. Come, let us roam the night together singing, I love you. Across the Harlem rooftops, moon is shining, Night sky is blue, stars are great drops of golden dew. Down the street a band is playing, I love you. Come, let us roam the night together singing. Thank you. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built a sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center, giving divine, perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, I crossed it in two hours. I'm a gazelle, so swift, so swift, you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows ever on. My son Noah built Newark, and I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. 
I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Men intoned my loving name. All praises, all praises. I am the one who would save. I sold diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal. I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what, I, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and failed. And that, as you know, was Lucille. We are very fortunate here this evening. Joanne and I did do 73 for 73. Joe's being nice to me about it, but we did. And, and I'm, I'm very pleased. And Someone mentioned that we need to celebrate people before they're gone. We at Virginia Tech are going to do that with Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou on October 16th, and I'm very excited about that. For sure. For sure. It uh, will be up on the web uh, probably in August, and it is a free program. Uh, The ladies are are coming free, so everything is going to be free. I learned that a long time ago from a lot of people I learned to dislike, but that's another discussion. (laughs) I also wanted to point out what we did with 73 for 73 was we both had uh, the the DVD, and, and for those of us who were upstairs, you saw it. And what we did with that DVD, because it's priced, actually, if I may say that, it's priced to sell. We're just going to a break-even point. I'm, I'm a pretty good salesman, so I've actually sold mine. I have. <laughs> I have. I think I have about 15 left, and I'm not going to sell anymore. Joe still has a few left. I'm not really sure how many are up there, maybe 20. They sell for like $15, $20 if you just have it. I think it's, I think it's way worth it. And I know that we have a bunch of teachers here. If you can just hear, because on that, we were all doing Lucille. And you get to hear Lucille in all of her various uh, uh, voices. So, I mean, to me, Jericho Brown just, just broke it down. But then Trudy A. Harris came out there. These hips, oh, and incredible. So I, I just think it's really something that, uh, and, you know, you can buy it and make it for your friends and then sell it to your friends for $5, and you make your money back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And I, I must say, I'm, and, and I'm pleased to be back at the Pratt. I always enjoy coming here. And the last time I was here was with James McBride, who was actually one of my favorite people to do anything with. He is such a nice person. I don't, you should know him because he's your fellow uh, Marylander. Is that what you all are? And uh, I mean no disrespect on that. Baltimoreans, like Baltimoreans, right? Gotcha. 
I'm a native Tennessean. I was born there. During the age of segregation, when you couldn't go to the same amusement park or the same movie theater, when the white guys would cruise up and down the street and call out to you, when the black guys were afraid of being lynched. But we went to church each Sunday and we sang a precious song. And we, we learned to survive, not to survive, because anything can survive, but to thrive and believe and hope. I'm a native Tennessean, I was born there, but I was only two months old when my mother and father moved my sister and me to Cincinnati during the age of segregation, when Dow drugstores wouldn't serve us, when neighborhoods were redlined, but at least mommy could get a job teaching and daddy could get a job behind a desk. And after all, if you are a college graduate, that's the least you can expect. Though the Pullman Porters took us south each summer and watched over us with an unfailing faith and got us from there to here. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. I was born there in the only state in rebellion that didn't have to undergo reconstruction. In the volunteer state that sent as many from one side as another. In an area where if I just have to have my car break down, I would prefer any holler to any city neighborhood. But there was no work and no way. And the chronic angers that flared would chase us to Ohio. We were not lies across in the river, just four people, two in love and two who were loved, who needed to put a rest to the rage. But the rage stayed, and someone had to go. I chose me, but I was born there, so the going was a coming. I'm a native Tennessean. I take no joy in Davy Crockett nor Jim Bowie. They were wrong to be at the Alamo. They were wrong to fight for the theft. I loved James Adgie. I loved Thunder Road, though I, a native Tennessean, was not allowed to play a bit part when the crew came to town to film the movie. Ingrid Bergman and Anthony Quinn came to take a walk in the spring rain. And despite it all, I like Andrew Jackson. At least he knew the big guys were wrong. I'm a native Tennessean. I graduated Fisk University in Nashville. I know that the freedmen paid for that school. Nobody gave them anything. Pennies and nickels and prayer and determination. The freedmen paid for it and many others. I know the American Missionary Society took the money the Jubilee Singers made to save Fisk and used it for other purposes. I know the American Missionary Society was wrong. I was educated by the singers of those songs. I love those songs. How could I not love Nashville? How could I not love Dinah Shore, who invited the Jubilee Singers to sing at the Grand Ole Opry, then had to hear the rumors. She sang on, sang until she saw the USA in her Chevrolet. I once saw her on a plane. I was going to the cabin. She was in first class. I said, hey. She smiled and said, hey, back. When I got Georgia on my mind, I rode the Chattanooga Choo Choo to Lookout Mountain. I saw Memphis and was enchanted, from the mighty Mississippi gracefully turning all red to Bell Street Beats at midnight. All those blues from so many bloods decided to turn my blues to Memphis gold. W.C. Handy, Bobby Blue Bland, B.B. King, the late, great Johnny Ace, stacks and stacks of music, American music. The Athens of the South held Tennessee music, but Memphis put the tears to the lonely and crossed over. Everybody wants to rock to my rhythm. I am Memphis. I heard the shots that took, that took Martin. I know who killed the king. I'm a native Tennessean. I know what it is to be free. I am singing the country blues. I am whittling a wooden dog. I'm underground mining coal. I am running moonshine. I'm a white boy with a banjo, native to West Africa. I'm a black boy with a twang, native to the hills. I am smart. I am cool. I am unafraid. I am free. Yeah, I'm a native Tennessean. Thank you.
I want to thank everyone who's here, the, the people who read and all of you who listened for helping us uh, celebrate Lucille Clifton in this really beautiful evening. And before you leave, if you'd like to take Lucille home with you, um, Barnes & Noble is here at the circulation desk and they are selling some of her books. So thank you again, everyone, and um, continue to celebrate Lucille Clifton. Um, please, you may go upstairs and see the exhibit, uh, second floor. <laughs>